0: Clubhouse. This is Paul.
1: This is Caroline.
0: And tonight we're going to talk about the sixth episode of the third season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. This episode is called Household.
1: So in other episodes, we've had it be really heavy on dialogue or really heavy on um, music. This one was really heavy on imagery and symbolism. 99% of this episode was outside of our 10 blocks that we normally get to hang out in Gilead. And we are actually in Washington, D.C. Were you surprised they were still calling it Washington, D.C., Paul?
0: I definitely was. Um, Lawrence calls it D.C. The the idea of still honoring the idea of calling it the District of Columbia is um, – because Columbia was was the first republic or the first democracy? First republic, right? And so that's the whole idea of Washington, D.C., is like honoring the idea of this of this representative government, right? And Gilead ain't that.
1: It's, <laughs> it's odd. I'm surprised with so, all of the changes that they make, and we're going to point out many, that they bothered to leave that. It seems – really unnecessary
0: so this episode does give us like caroline mentioned since we're outside of the little tiny universe that we've had we do get to see larger blocks filled in of of world building stuff
1: which was good i needed that breath of of fresh air although i mean this is very unsettling air uh that i got into my lungs but i would say that it was it was good
0: she was coughing
1: yeah i I was i was like sneezing coughing hay fever achy chills can't sleep Oh that stuff. Diarrhea. <laughs> exactly. I didn't I wasn't going to bring up the diarrhea, but since you did, it was bad. anyway let's talk about the setup for this entire episode it was given to us with just a little bit of dialogue at the very beginning of the episode we have a voiceover with june and she is explaining that there has been this ongoing prayer going around seemingly a tree of like ribbons and these like decorative beads basically a vigil going on for nicole's safe return and she expresses her own desires and prayers for what she wishes happened to the waterfords
0: I wonder if we're so in June's head that I wonder if what she is wondering for her own self, how close she is. Because she's thinking out loud, are these people actually praying for the baby's safe return or do they still have some piece of who they were in them where they have to go through the motions or they'll get shot or strung up or something? But really in their secret hearts, they'd rather... The babies stay in in Canada. I like to hope that she's right that the actual level of kool-Aid consumption in Gilead is is restricted to probably commanders, some of their wives, but just about no one else.
1: Yeah, it's like the further you go down the food chain, the less and less you're L- less Kool-Aid goes around. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that one of the things that was interesting to me about that whole portion was this concept of prayer and how prayer is mentioned throughout this entire episode. It is like the uniting word, I would say, of the episode. And you have this, you know, question mark from, from June and this voiceover of, you know, what are they praying about? And then she shares her glimpse of like what she's praying for, you know, that the Waterfords would have a change of heart. And or they could be hit by a bus. Like anything is fine by her. She's good with any of that. She just basically needs this shit to end, which for all of us viewers, we're like, we get you, girl. We get you. You know,
0: I don't want to jump ahead. Exactly. But that what we're talking about with the people's mm, dichotomy, hopefully, of of how they feel versus what they're, quote unquote, praying for that ties into Winslow's comment in the in the gentleman's parlor is is uh fred says well the power of prayer right and then winslow says no it's the presentation of that power right so so like you were talking about imagery and and one thing standing in for another that's that's like that's like what's happening in this first scene is the presentation of that power or you could fill in presentation of prayer basically is how this whole episode kind of kind of shapes up is like what are they thinking what are they actually truly believing in there
1: yeah, and so we start off on that really small level, just there in their little neighborhood, and we get this larger bit of information that Lawrence says that Fred is borrowing June and that they are going to be a part of a public prayer out to the world for Nicole. And this is, again, this interesting you know, move towards prayer being this show of power, being this show of look at how many people are simultaneously doing the same thing they're showing it as prayer, but it's all under this like control, you know, sort of like, again, like when you've mentioned like North Korea or something you see like them all doing the same thing at the same time, you could say they're all like-minded or you could say none of them want to die. So they're just doing what they're supposed to do, right? So that's the interesting thing about prayer, right? You can look like one thing, but prayer is actually like the one thing that these people still have that's completely personal. Like you don't really know what they're praying on the inside. And they give you enough glimpses throughout the whole episode that people have different prayers that they're saying, including Aunt Lydia and everyone, you know, they give you these little nuggets.
0: I was having a online conversation with somebody um, yesterday about how things are going down in in Gilead. And I, I came across with what I hope is the perfect parallel North Korea and, and, East Germany, West Germany, they're not quite as perfect as the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, right? They moved in because they wanted to bring a more hardline uh, approach to to Islam than than was previously happening, and they thought they could do a better job of running the country. And just like that, how later on in this episode, how the Swiss say that Gilead is quite powerful, and that leaves us kind of scratching our heads as to like, well, what does that power actually kind of amount to since they can't even manage their own borders? Well, somewhere in there, they they probably still have the keys to some portion of the United States nuclear weapon arsenal and, you know, whatever assets militarily that we had in the lower forty eight that they still had access to. So in terms of powerful, it's more like they're a kid with a with a bat. You know, you you you, you do have to recognize some of the some of the power there that that, that that kid wields just by having the bat. You know what I mean?
1: I completely never considered that that was what they meant by powerful. I didn't really consider that it was about Whatever warhead, you know, whatever we had available still left, like whatever stockpile. I'm just trying to rationalize the comment, but um, I yeah, I didn't really think about that. I I guess what I was thinking about in terms of power would be going back to that idea that the entire world is desperate to have babies, and if Gilead is in some way presenting a solution to the problem that the entire world's population is dealing with then no matter how crazy their ideas are, and no matter how insane that these things are all portrayed, if at the end of the day, you get results, and you have these babies and all these kids, then I feel like there's power in that. Um, It's sort of like, you know, showing, again, like those kind of countries where someone's showing like fat and happy people eating and everything, you're like, Oh, my God, whatever they're doing, that's the right thing to do, you know? Um, But I think in
0: the sense of of messing with another country in terms of like, give me back my baby. It's not really like, well, your ability to make babies does make you powerful. It's no, it, I think it's more like you're holding a pretty big stick and, 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 and I'm not doing what you tell me to do.
1: I, I honestly never considered that because if we were really concerned just about that, I guess I want to say we know that other countries all around the world have weapons the same and uh, on the same level as us. So I guess I, I never... We never talk about that in the show and maybe that's a, a purposeful omission on their part that we never discuss the fact that like all the other countries got together with their soldiers, they could take over Gilead in in one minute, you know, they could obliterate the entire thing. There's something more hands-off about the whole thing. There's something more to it than just Gilead could push the button because we could push the button on Gilead. but they have all these babies, and we need the babies. So it seems like, I don't know, if you're thinking about like, what's valuable, I don't know if it's weaponry, or if it's the power to have babies. I don't know. So this is let. I mean, as, as listeners, you guys, we're not even like really disagreeing with each other. I'm really wondering, like, what is it? Is it the concept of having a solution to a world's problem? Or is it the intimidation of such huge weaponry, you know what what would deem a country powerful at this stage of the game i don't know when they said gilead's so powerful we both looked at each other like what <laughs> like, because I feel like just like five seconds ago when the Mexican delegation was there and we were listening to Fred explain why we were like desperate need of like trade deals. And, you know, basically there's a lot of rationing that we, we've we been discussing, you know, how the grocery store doesn't have so much food. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of reduce, re- recycle, reuse kind of feel about things that... I don't know. I didn't really get the concept that Gilead was this really thriving, profitable country. Me neither. But I think maybe we're using the wrong yardstick for what is considered powerful, what is considered successful. And the only thing they've really ever presented to us is the concept of not that you're really good at making war, but that you're really good at making babies. And that that is the only thing that is like somehow protecting you and or making you powerful. But I invite listeners, you guys, if you guys think it's something else, if it's the military part or even the fact that they have this gumption to go around attacking areas like Chicago, does that like sort of irrational willingness to do this crusade make you so intimidating that the rest of the world who's just trying to use like what we would all consider common sense and like normal behavior when someone's like so outside of that? that creates a weird power dynamic unto itself because you like don't know what they're going to do that's next.
0: That's why I said a kid with a bat.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that's a good example that you, you just don't know what they're going to do next. And even if they're not an adult with a bat, they can still hurt you, you know, <laughs> they hit you. So it's, it, it is very interesting. Obviously the concept of like stealing people from countries and stuff, again, going back to sort of like the terrorism analogy you were using, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at, The amount of people that have actually been killed by terrorism versus like many other things, we're all way more scared of terrorism because it feels so much more unpredictable and just frightening and outside of like what any of us would do, as opposed to the number of people who probably die in a car crash every day, but we don't hesitate to get in a car. So it's like some of those are just like our own ideas of what's scary and what could really happen. So this was a, um, again, going back to prayer, let's get back to that. And this idea of the power of prayer, uh, Paul, do you believe in the idea of a bunch of people getting together and whether you call it prayer or whether you call it sort of like intentions or whatever, is there any power to people gathering and sort of putting all one specific intention simultaneously?
0: I didn't know that I was going to expose my beliefs on the podcast, but I'll, I'm happy to share. I do. I do believe in um, something like the power of prayer, but not in the way that probably most people do. I think when there's a directed mental energy expended by a, a large group of people all toward the same thing, I think it can amount to something. I think it can amount to changing. I don't know if it's just the the universe's sense of odds or irony or a sense of humor or something toward a given event or, or thing or place. But that mental energy means something. I personally don't think it, it goes up to God and God says, well, a million people asked for it. So, okay. Or whatever. Or, you know, this football team asked me to let them win the game. So, okay. I, I don't think that that stuff works, but I do think that a lot of people focusing on the same thing together can make a difference.
1: I definitely agree with you. Like, um, there's a Helen Keller saying that it's like, um, alone we can do so little together. We can do so much. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that if you get a group of people together with a one singular focus, they are a force to be reckoned with. I I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say it doesn't matter if it's like you're thinking about like, God, please let this happen. Or if you're just thinking like, please let this End in this way. Like, let's let us all as a group find a missing child, and we're all gonna do this together. There's something about like everyone turning their eyes on one problem simultaneously that honestly does seem to yield results in a way that can feel very miraculous. Paul and I just had a golf tournament yesterday, and having a hundred people in the room all looking at us saying, We're all encouraging you and supporting you and your family there's something to that that's that's almost like wants to bring it you to your knees certainly brings tears to your eyes that so many people would stop what they're doing and all focus in on one issue that concerns you is something that's like wow you know there's something to that to that point these propaganda videos that is basically going to be the point of this entire episode i do feel like the idea of having this telegraphed concept across the world like look at all of these people together wishing and praying for the same thing it almost makes you like stop and look inward and be like well should i be wishing for that too you know if all these people are doing i mean this feels like like a movement towards something you know Mm -hmm. and i know that you know in that idea of like getting caught up in the crowd there's another way to think of that there's like go with the flow and then there's caught up with the crowd like there's like a mm, like a yin and a yang to that like like I wanna do it and it's like gonna make things easier and better. I'm going, I'm going with the flow. And then there's like a, I'm not even thinking for myself anymore. I'm just like caught up with the crowd here and what they're all doing. It's an interesting, you know, mob mentality that the more you're shown that image, the more you might think, I I need to be doing what, you know, thinking the way they're thinking. Lemmings. Lemmings. Let us think of the lemmings. You know, uh, do you know that walruses were doing that most recently too? They're just doing this move where they were like, they were getting like closer and closer to the edge and they were just sort of like following each other. They were just, And they were falling over the edge to their deaths. Like, it was very lemming-like. It was really crazy.
0: That's a bad idea, walruses.
1: Walruses, yo. Manage your shit. God, listen, Paul. They got caught up, okay? One guy in the back said, go with the flow. Just follow George at the front.
0: Fake news. I
1: know. And the guy and, and the guy was like, "You know, yo, I don't know about this. I was just going this way. And then all these people are following me, so I guess I'm going the right way. Burr, burr, burr. Dead. Disgusting Awful. Okay, moving into Disgusting Awful, let's get into this episode, Paul. Freaky! Again, I was actually excited to get out of our hood. I was ready for some new information. I wanted some new characters. I wanted some new settings. But I was pretty grossed out by the things that I saw. Let's start off with the train ride and the train station, Paul. Hong Kong. No. How do you say? woo woo! All aboard. <laughs> Not Hong Kong
0: again there's 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 a big um uh reminder of segregation in this episode right and lydia and uh june have to ride i i would assume probably in uh in like a standard car like like seating type car where i bet the waterfords we never saw them but i bet they were in like a like a sleeper maybe
1: i bet they were in a car
0: like a whole car
1: um uh, no i don't mean a train car i mean like a driving a car Oh, you think so? Yeah, because I think that you want to be able to, like, pull around and go to the bathroom when you want to or do whatever, you know, like, as opposed to, like, you know, when you're, like, in a train, it's like, I don't know. I think they'd want the freedom and the, like, I think it's, it's, like, fancier to, like, show up in your own black automobile. Good point,
0: because they showed up separately at the train station.
1: Right. And so I think you move, like, cattle with your train and the people go in the cars, the automobiles. Not That's the train interesting.
0: Cars. So that train station.
1: I think it was mostly filled with people that were lower class than commanders and wives for the most part. There definitely were some, but they could have been picking up people like we said. Now, so maybe there was an upper class car too. I don't know. Or maybe there was just sort of like midway. I just got the impression that they had their own car and stuff when they got there. And like you said, they showed up kind of separately. So, I don't know that was my assumption. So
0: I wonder when we're at in DC and we we've seen how the government works in Boston how they have who they say is the architect of Gilead in Boston there with them and they seem to be making these decisions military decisions like uh, providing assets and 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 all that kind of stuff for making the military work you know allocation of resources all that kind of stuff so that makes you think they run the government right there. But then we have D.C. where this really highfalutin commander lives, Winslow, right? And when we get there, we find out that there, there's actually a little bit of, of a change in the customs that they don't even really even know you know, th- coming from Boston into Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely, I would say the entire atmosphere of D.C. is extreme. Like this is like Gilead to the extreme. So the handmaids have, you know, coverings from their noses down. That's what we see, like or only their eyes and like the tips of their noses are revealed. Even things like in the train station, the escalators appear to be men and women, um, you know, we have this really strange red circle meetup situation where it, you know, what it reminded me of like baggage claim. Like they came and they were kneeling down in or the circle, and then retrieval. Fred came along and said, She's oh, well, ours.
0: Then, well, yeah, that's right. She
1: said, He said, This one's ours. And then she had to get up. But the, even the way that from the train, And June had to go find her red circle. That was very much like how you go find your like baggage carousel. You know, it's like follow the signs, go to baggage claim, you know, and she like went there and basically was claimed. There was a lot of that. And um, it definitely gave you that feel that everything just felt a lot more strict and everything felt like so much more on edge. And we didn't get to the reveal that you're really talking about at this point, but you already knew something was funky about this place.
0: The kneeling, like it seemed like the, yes. the handmaids were constantly needing to kneel in, in this episode, and we haven't seen that imagery before, really. Is it, are are we seeing just sort of like a hardline approach to the Gilead society, or is it or is it that the rules get a little more slack, even though they seem pretty strict out in the in the further, you know, territories like Boston? I that's not actually that far, but you know, you know what I'm saying.
1: I want to say that perhaps the reason reason. reason why things would be more extreme in DC is that we know that initially that's where Gilead took its first claim. They bombed Congress. Yes. They took over at DC. There's some sense that the most extreme people may have settled right there to start things out. And as you ripple out from there, the lower down commanders take over neighborhoods further away from DC. So then it makes sense that those at the very highest level would be extremists. And so, you know, their behavior, their customs, everything would come off. Way more strict. Now, you bring up the question mark about Lawrence and the fact that he is the architect. Now, here's the thing about him, though he doesn't want to attend meetings, he doesn't want to be a part of the everyday workings of the government. So, it actually makes sense to me that he's sort of like government light like outside of there, living in a way more almost like countryside existence with these, you know, it is a large home for Winslow's, but he lives on more of like an estate kind of feel as opposed to like in the city with all these people and all this stuff. So to me, that's still like a luxury. He gets to governed from afar and they allow that. So I'm still going to say that that shows his power, that he actually had like a choice of where to live, in my opinion, as opposed to having to like, you know, live in what might be the White House or whatever. He's always seemed to wanted to be the puppeteer, the guy behind the scenes. He's not going to be the guy leading the charge in D.C., but he's going to be the guy who maybe told the guy what to do in D.C.
0: Okay, I can go with that.
1: Way more man behind the curtain. Let's talk about the guys who do live in D.C., though. We met the Winslows, George and Olivia. They have a massive amount of kids, Paul. Massive. Six kids. I was like, what the hell? Let me ask your take right away on George, because he was the first Winslow that we met. What was your just, like, gut reaction to George?
0: A, he didn't come on time to their meeting, which I guess is okay, because it's your house, so it's like you keep your schedule. But then he says that the invitation to stay there wasn't even his right like, but it's not unusual to to give your wife credit for things of the of the home which they're being invited to stay in their home so okay that's not exactly a full strike against you just yet he likes to wave his his power and his um wealth in in your face um In in some cases, if you're playing pool, like, right in your face with his gigantic ass. But in this case, in this scene, this is like a pimp letting, like, $100 bills, like, fall out of his, like... Out of like the cuffs of his jacket, right? Yeah. By having children Just that many, run children in
1: laughing and squealing, I find it hard to believe that all six children come running, laughing and squealing on a nightly They're basis. Like
0: the freaking Von Traps, it
1: seemed exactly <laughs> like the Von Traps and Olivia coming in. And, ha, laughing and everything i mean i find it hard to believe that's like day-to-day life in the winslow house
0: you know olivia if, if they have facebook and gilead she's she's definitely one of those that takes pictures oh, like god. the reason Hashtag i get up or you know reason,
1: no 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 <laughs> the reason i breathe right right like oh my god yeah so completely it had such the air of that pimp like you were talking about of just the luxury the six kid luxury of it all you know six
0: kid plus a handmaid like we're still willing to to do our part for the for the country here
1: which super eked me out because i actually only got the feeling like she was just there for sex then because they already have six kids i don't even know if that Like, you know, that's what, that was my gut instinct was like, oh man, he just like keeps a chick around for sex. That's how I felt about it. Now... Let's talk a little bit more about um, George and his, like, very uncertain nature about Fred's household. He is presenting his household, like, check us out, right? But Fred, he's very questioning. Like, he's like, it really matters how you're going about these propaganda videos. Like, you better watch what you're showing on that stuff. Basically, you better have your handmaid in line. Your wife better look just so. These things better go, like, freaking clockwork, because whatever we put out there to the world, they are going to be judging us. And he was, he was very wary of Fred. Now, can you kind of understand where George was coming from in terms of like the Waterford's coming in from the sticks as far as they're concerned, coming in, coming to like big bad D.C., right? Staying in your house. I feel like that's where he's like, oh, Olivia invited you like not freaking me and being like, I don't know that I want to be all up in your business, Waterford. Like you're whining about your one little baby, and, like, we're all going to get involved government to government over your one little baby when, like, my six babies just came running and laughing and joking. Do you feel like there was, like, an air of, like, you're really making us all put our necks out there as a country over your one freaking little kid?
0: It could be that. Or it could also be that your house is a freaking mess. And now you've made it the whole government's problem.
1: Yes. And and how does this look? How does this look to the world when, like, you know, what's going on? Like, people are running away from Gilead. People's babies are being snatched. Like, you're making it look like nobody wants to stay here, man. That's making us all look bad. What are you doing?
0: Yeah, so that would explain why the the pool scene, the pool room scene, that that explains what he said, basically. Which is, like, he came around to it because Fred in their warped little universe made it made them seem sympathetic. Like their baby was taken. This is like a, an affront to their culture. Yada, yada, yada.
1: And I also think that if you look at the situation, again, the title being household and Fred being the commander, being needing to be in control of everything in his household. And the fact that if you look at Winslow and he's like, look, I keep six kids from getting stolen on a daily basis. You had one for less than a year and you're slipped out of your fingers. Like, nice job, Butterfingers, right? So he's already looking at that household like it's in chaos. So now here is the household right in front of Winslow and he's seeing that Serena's falling in line the handmaid appears to be falling in line they're managing to make these videos that appear to be in control and I think by that point when they're playing pool he's duly impressed with Fred he feels like hey you know what I'm angling for you to come to DC at this point because it looks like despite what I thought when push comes to shove you do have your house in order so I'm impressed with that now I have to ask you Paul that entire scene playing pool There was so much to it that was like subtext. And I invite our listeners, I want to know what you guys think. Are we starting to tread into a potentially homosexual ground here where he was trying to dominate Fred in a way that was like, you're going to be my you're my bottom basically later, okay? Like we are going to, I am going to dominate you. Or was this simply like putting his butt in his face, putting his hand on his shoulder? Is this all more like, I am so unaware of you. You are so nothing to me that your personal space is not my problem. Like I can touch you. I can push you around. I can put my ass in your face because you don't mean shit to me. Like I have such little respect for you. You're not even another man. I just treat you like I would treat a woman basically, or nothing, you know, I act like you're thin air. So what do you think? Is this a a sexual advance? Is this a pass? Or is he just being like total silverback gorilla? Like I own this whole room and like you get up and move if my butt's in your face. I'm not not taking my shot.
0: The actor, Chris Maloney has been on like lots of stuff. He was the lead on one of those law and order shows for a long time. So he's, he's a, Pretty experienced hand, and he played this. I would say fifty-fifty down the line, both ways. You could look at it either way. Like you mentioned, the way that he sticks his ass in his face, but he also has the pool cue and he like jams it back, which causes Fred to have to like pull whatever he's holding his drink out of the way. Like you said, it's it's it, it's it's classic. You know, I'm the big fish, and I don't. I'm you're beneath me kind of behavior. But then the the ass in the face. Combined with the the shoulder touch, man.
1: That shoulder touch was was particular because Fred was already kind of leaning forward on the pool table. And the way that he put his hand on him, he kind of put it like over him. Like when a big man is like kind of over a woman, like showing her how to like put with a, like a club or something. There's that like, like encompassing kind of move that he does around him that is... I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get into some place that's like, maybe they're going to try to show some sort of down low life of, you know, the commanders in DC. I don't know what they're going to try to do here. Or again, if this is just simply like, I am so used to dominating and intimidating every single person in my quote unquote household. You're just another person to be pushed around. And I do sexually intimidate everybody else in this household. Why wouldn't I do it to you? Just because you're another man, please. Please. You know, like, that's not going to hold him back.
0: They picked a guy who who looks like, you know, people kind of come in sizes, right? And this guy looks like the next size and a half up.
1: He does. <laughs> like, when when they show, like, Fred standing in profile and George, I mean, George is definitely, like you said, like a man and a half compared to Fred. Yeah. Absolutely. And they did a lot of imagery in this episode, in my opinion, to show Fred on a smaller scale. So, like, mm. there was a conversation in the bedroom with Serena. And if you look at the way that shot, Fred's height only takes up two thirds of the screen and they leave like the top third to be the wall and even the, the ceiling a little bit. And in that way, it seems very like, you know, if if we were all to take that photograph, we'd be like, you tilted the camera too high. Like you cut him off at the waist and then there's like a whole third of the shot above his yeah. head. Like that seems like weird composition. But to me, I feel like over and over again, it showed Fred small. He was small. He kept being like pushed down into this smaller place.
0: So what was your lean? Dominating or uh, potential homosexual? uh...
1: I'm not sure it matters. I I do think that the concept of sexuality generally in Gilead is one of Oppression and using it as a tool to intimidate others. And so, in that way, I kind of feel like it kind of doesn't matter. You know, the fact that it's a man with another man actually doesn't play out any differently in my head than him, you know, leaning on a woman. Like it all feels like, yeah, they have no respect for anyone else's bodies or boundaries or anything. You know, they're just going to grab whatever they want.
0: They're pretty down on homosexual women. I'd imagine they are on men, too. I mean, I'm
1: positive. I mean, given that it is, you know, supposedly Bible-based, I'm positive they're down on any type of intercourse of any sort or pleasure of well, plot, any sort.
0: Plot-wise, though, that seems like Fred may go through something terrible, but then no, he I, has— I,
1: I think there's a fair shot. And actually, if you really think about it, if Fred got raped and or had to submit to George— I mean, this show has shown a lot of different things that women have had to endure. If now you put Fred into those women's shoes, there is something that would be very balanced about that concept that like that Gilead is cruel and unusual to everyone. And if you are not the highest power, anybody, you are just as likely to be abused on some level. No one, as as Lawrence pointed out in the previous episode, no one is safe. Just because you're a commander, just because you're a man, statistically, a lot of people say, oh, you know, this many and this many women statistically are raped. But then no one ever throws in the the men's statistics, which are surprisingly high. So if you throw that into the pile, it's like, oh, they're actually just kind of showing a more balanced picture, but it's as accurate.
0: Well, all right.
1: Let's talk about Olivia a little bit because, you know, she's the other half of this Winslow pair and she it turns out to be... um Kind of interesting to me, the fact that she reveals that they're both lawyers and that she, despite the fact that it's taboo, decides to reveal to Serena that she has not only read Serena's book, but that she's 100% drank the Kool-Aid. And it was Serena's book who really, you know, just had their marriage blossom into this gross situation that it is now.
0: This actress, Elizabeth Reeser, or maybe Reeser, you might recognize her as Esme from Twilight, those movies, but she was also recently on The Haunting of Hill House. So she acts a whole lot. And she's kind of. I
1: recognize kind her of, face. She's kind of phenomenal. very
0: famous for a background role like this. You know what I mean? She was on Mad Men. I'm seeing like she was on, on Law and Order for a long time. I think we're going to see more of Olivia why would they have her in such a such a teeny tiny background role you know To me
1: I think that this speaks to both of the Winslows I think that there is a fair shot that the Waterfords do go to Washington. There's a fair shot that we have to do something to make things more interesting. We can't just stick around with the Putnams next door, fooling around with baby showers. Like that's not gonna keep audiences coming back every week. So if you move them to DC, if you move this couple into where more of the action is, you you pretty much have to in order for things to become, again, more tension-filled because a lot of what we've had back in the old neighborhood has kind of dissipated. There isn't that sense of urgency within those group of people that we've had seasons one and two. So if you move them into a more extreme circumstance again, I think that we're going to see all of our hearts beating a lot faster again.
0: We're getting off track a little bit, but that has me wondering if they go, do they try to bring June? If that happens, then Hannah's way out of position. You know what I mean? So it's like the plot kind of gets... Mm, thicker, very, very much so for for June, because she's way far away from where she wants to be.
1: Which is kind of necessary, because if you think about it, by this point, we, you know, last week, we had it where she's got Serena on her side, owes her a favor, tells her where her kid is, Everything is, like, so much, like, just, like, on a silver platter that snatching her seems really, really plausible. If you move June out of that situation into a far more strict environment with far more unknowns, we don't have any allies here. We take away all of the parts of her, like, understanding how to get around the neighborhood or or people to talk to, then you can invite like this whole new group of characters who are now super scary to all of us, including June. And you have that actual tension of like, how do you get all the way back to Hannah now? Which we kind of need because right now she's just kind of down the road and you even know the bed she sleeps in. And, you know, there's a lot of factors that, that were sort of already figured out, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just when I think about this show, I know that they've talked about just running it forever. But I also kind of think like this seems like it'd be more satisfying as like a four or five season show.
1: Right. But I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I really don't. I, I, I agree with you that I would be completely OK with them doing that. But we've had this discussion in, in an earlier podcast. What is Endgame for Handmaid's? Does this show series need to end with June simply being safe in Canada with Hannah and Nicole and Luke? Is that a successful ending to this show with Gilead running strong? Or does Gilead have to fall to its knees? Does it have to absolutely crumble? Does it burn that mother down have to happen in order for the series to feel successfully concluded? If that has to happen, don't we have to go to D.C.? Don't we have to go to where more things can actually happen?
0: That's Excellent freaking point.
1: You can't burn it down from the suburbs is what I'm saying. Like you got to get in there where the powerful people are.
0: You got to take your dragon to King's Landing.
1: You got to (laughs) take your dragon to King's Landing, man. I'm just saying, I'm saying, bring the fire to where people got to burn. Right. And where the worst travesties are taking place. Like we thought that aunt Lydia was something to worry about, but at the end of the day, we can see that, no, there is a whole other life that is far worse than the colonies, far worse than what you thought. You're kind of like dancing around at Lawrence's house. Again, think last week, playing a boombox in the in the basement, fooling around with mixtapes. You don't even know how bad it could get, girl. And it's got to get worse. Or again, all the articles I'm reading out there and all the feedback I'm getting is like, June seems untouchable. June doesn't seem like anything could happen to her. I'm afraid we're going to have to have a lot more gross things happen to June in order for us to be invested. Okay, my last takeaway for the Winslow home that I really want to get into is this idea that the children legitimately seemed happy and well taken care of. And there was this moment where Serena asks, are all these yours? And Olivia says, who else would they be? And of course, you know, Greg gains like a gigantic eyebrow from June. What do you think about this? Is it possible that five years in plus to this society, because we know June's been in there about five years. So, and it was already a thriving society when she came in. Are these children happy, healthy, well-taking care of children? Is this a society that you think they are going to be able to function in moving forward? What are you seeing? If you were born into it?
0: If you were born into it, then yeah, they will be Gilead citizens. If you are born into it, into that thinking, thinking that girls have a certain role to play and that's just it. Then unfortunately for those girls, they're going to be stuck with that, that mindset. You'll have the, the occasional outlier that, that just won't, won't fit in. And unfortunately they'll probably do something bad to her, but Unfortunately, they're going to think everything's great and that this is the way things are supposed to be.
1: So uh, spoilers for Endgame. So pause us now or fast forward me like 30 seconds. But it reminds me of Thanos' entire soliloquy about basically, you know, he did what he did. I'm not going to say everything. I don't want to spoil everything. He did what he did and left behind the, the, this population. But the reality was you got to start from scratch because if you leave these people like June, who are the people who still remember what it was like and haven't drank the Kool-Aid, then you always have this risk that people are going to constantly be undermining you. But the only people who are truly going to be able to move this world forward in the way that he had thought was the way that the world needed to go is the newly christened into this world. Those who did not know what the world was like before. That is exactly what it is like for me with this group. It's like these children, legitimate, can be happy. And even a moment with Rita when they were leaving the train station and there was one of those moments, many, many moments of this episode where June is trying to kind of talk through Serena's need for the child and how she needs to let this go and she needs to let her stay in Canada. And Rita's like, this is like her only thing she wanted her whole life. There was that Little twinge of like, ooh, Rita like empathizes with her. That made me realize like, oh, people are going to drink the Kool-Aid along the way. Rita, who we 100% felt was on the side of getting Nicole out. She orchestrated it. Now she's there smiling alongside Serena like, well, you know, Serena's got her reasons, June. Like, what?
0: Which which reminds me of the old husband um, get out of jail free card with your friends, which is... I gotta live with her, and I think that's that's kind of Rita's possible rationale is well, I I can't I can't live in her house and constantly just disagree with her. I mean, just for my own self, I have to see it her way, or I will just go insane or something. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I, just, I think that that's reasonable. She needs
0: peace. Any person wants peace. Let's hit Serena going into this. Did, did you think that there was anything left in there, any recognition of the deal that they had struck, or the, or the informal alliance that they had, or because last week we just had like the back of Serena's head, while June was was like Serena, Serena, and, and nothing, you know, on the TV thing. Were you surprised when? There was none of that left. Like, like the the whole part about you changed when you saw her. Nothing else changed.
1: I feel like Serena in this episode, um, is she there's sort of like June's on one side of the string and Fred's on the other. And Serena feels like this bead that's sort of like flowing back and forth on the string. And to me, this episode had that bead distinctly moving towards Fred and away from June. So there were so many moments with Fred that felt like, you know, we we had the the bedroom scene that I was talking about, where we had him looking kind of smaller and a little more meek, and he, you know, he leaves her wedding ring there. He's not even seemingly trying to like force her to put that ring back on, but he just sort of casually says like, you know, for optics, like it would be good if you if you wore this. Clearly, you pointed out something great with that mirror with Serena.
0: That shot that Caroline was mentioning, where the commander is looking small, and it's a very symmetrical shot, except for this mirror that is off to his right side our left side and you can see Serena's reflection in the mirror I think that this is like you know the the two sides of of Serena we get the image of her a little bit in the scene but with the, the reflection it's I think it's I think it's supposed to represent kind of the di- dichotomy of of her personality this season so far which is knowing what's best for the baby and And then her selfish need to have the baby next to her.
1: I think there's even confusion for her about what is best for the baby. Like, if you think about the idea of, again, her seeing these six kids hanging out in this nursery, seeing them all be happy and growing up healthy and, you know, excited and and energetic. I think that there's part of her that despite, of course, things like, you know, your child will never learn to read. And, you know, she's wearing this pink dress because she's heading towards wearing a red dress. It's like so frightening. I almost wish they had the children, girl children, wear a color that did not distinguish them as going towards handmaid or wife. So not a light blue dress and not a light pink dress, but something else like, you know, purple or yellow or something that gave you some amount of hope as Serena that you could actually use that with June to be like, look, maybe she's going to become a wife. She's going to be ahead of a household. She's going to run her own show. She's going to be powerful and great and all this stuff. Because by wearing pink... Those girls are only representative of becoming future sex slaves. I don't really know how Serena can deal with that internally. You know, I, I don't really know how she can look at that in She that doesn't way.
0: let herself go that deep with her thoughts.
1: She doesn't, but the children are in your face. When Polly comes running in in a full pink outfit, there's nothing confusing about her future. But for me, I'm like, in order to give Serena like a little bit of like actual motivational oomph here, I feel like you have to leave room that All the girl children are not going to grow up to just be submissive sexual slaves. There has to be some room where you say, but no, there's room for 5% to become wives or, you know, whatever, some other thing. Let's talk a little bit about the tea party that the children have invited the uh, men to. Watching Fred and George sit at that little tiny table again the scene of the ring and the pinky and the giving of the sugar what'd you think about all that
0: first i thought fred was uh, real lame uh with his rah 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 business you but did? but i mean i i've probably rah rah rared myself a few times so
1: you thought he was lame
0: well he was in
1: a nursery full of he's... kids you didn't think he was just playing the part?
0: He's disingenuous. We, he, he gets his coaching from whores about how to talk to his wife. It's.
1: I thought the whole thing was hugely symbolic. He came over with this little lion and he asked for some sugar. To me, that's like, you know, when you go over and you say, give me some sugar, honey, to your wife or whatever, you mean affection. Yeah. And so the fact that she was willing to pick up the sugar and they showed that shot of her wearing the wedding ring the cut off pinky finger, which I do want to say really high praise to the prop people in thinking of some way to cover up that finger and not have to have the special effects team have to go back and erase half of her pinky every week. I think that was really smart. The more that I Definitely. watch it in motion, the more that I take away that part of it. Oh, it's like symbolizing her just, you know, coming back into the world as a 10 fingered person. I take it so much more. as like, what a cost saving measure to have placed that over there and to just eliminate the need to hide that finger cut off. Like really smart.
0: If there was such a thing as DVD commentary on these, I, I'm positive that that would be mentioned because that's a really good observation.
1: So additionally, she does pick up the sugar and she does give it to Fred. And when he looks at her and and the little child takes away the lion, a child takes away the lion, I feel like, and he says, I lost my lion. They look at each other. Serena acknowledges that. To me, that was like the loss of our baby, the loss of everything that happened. A child took away my lion, my lioness. Serena. So I took that entire scene. I wasn't taking anything like Fred was being lame. I got it. I got that he like literally was like begging for her to come back. They were steeped in these children's world of like her. um, I mean, God, Paul, I don't even know if you realize this, but there is so much like dad porn out there where like women look at this stuff where it's like a dad with like a baby Bjorn on like cooking and that's like mouth-watering, droolingly sexy. Or, you know, so a man playing like tea party with little girls is like, oh, my ovaries, like I can't stand it. There's something about all of that that is working for Serena. She is So into this and I just think it's moving her little, her little piece closer and closer and closer to Fred and really wanting this family lifestyle.
0: I think you're right. and Definitely in this scene, Fred, he got a smile out of her, which has been um, a long time coming from, from probably his point of view. So you are right.
1: Now, going back to your original question about June, I think that the closer you get to Fred, just again by design, the further you get from June. Like, there's no way that you can lean into wanting to be a family and still be anywhere near sympathetic to the way that june is trying to persuade her you just can't it's like one way or the other it's black or white you either have a child and you're with your husband or you don't have a child and you're on june's side and you're trying to bust this place up but you can't do both you know yeah i thought it was a particular stake in the heart that serena actually mentions that seeing the child is what changed her to want to be driven to go get the baby back To me, as the one that would be like thinking like, I'm the one that had to persuade Luke to bring you to that moment. Like I basically orchestrated that moment Mm -hmm. to happen. I mean, God damn, like insult to injury here.
0: I put this on Luke. He could have gotten a headache that day, you know? Like just not gone, just not agreed to do it. There was nothing making him do it. I think he should have never let Serena, see the baby, hold the baby, anything like that. Since that is what has set her off again, she could have pined away for the baby forever without getting the entire government involved. You know what I mean?
1: Throughout this episode, we have June sprinkled out through just in many, many moments, her trying to persuade Serena that somehow life could be better for Nicole if she could simply be on the outside. And I just felt like A, it was making zero headway with Serena. And B, I just felt like June was just like losing her power. Like it was like physically escaping her body. Did you feel like June even, like, sort of even understood her level of, like, you have no influence anymore with these people?
0: Uh, Yeah, in in the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, that's why she had to throw her last most desperate, harsh-sounding insults at Serena to try to get a reaction out of her, get her to see things. I mean, those are... Those are kind of like final words. you're empty inside. You can't step that back and be like, well, i only meant you know kind of empty you know that's like a that's like a no, I think you're a shell of a person you're you're nothing
1: right and and, and we're gonna get into that that yelling scene for sure because that is so pivotal. I mean that is the moment where they both say the absolute worst things they could possibly say to one another. Let's talk about overall why we're here in D.C. What were the two main big moments that needed to happen in order for this to have been a successful trip in the eyes of the Waterfords? We have this public recorded prayer that needs to happen, this this propaganda video making. But secondarily, we have enlisting the help of a neutral party in this case it's going to be the swiss which you totally called as soon as they started to say it, you're like it's got to be switzerland and i'm like ah, oh, damn like why would they like want to come and be involved with this but turns out they are so we have this entire section with the swiss council we're gonna talk about the swiss council first because that really informs a lot of where june sort of ends up in this prayer
0: I like how they come in and they're and they're like, well, we're running the show, and, they, and they're and even even with um, the commander's uh, hesitations of letting them speak to June alone, they're like, well, we want to speak to her alone.
1: I was actually quite surprised that when he pulled the the actual card of like culturally, it's not appropriate for you to speak to her without me being in there. I thought there might be a moment where they said. Okay. Because if you're like neutral to the situation, it kind of seems like you have to be respectful to the cultural ways of the people. It seems like you can't really be judgy like that.
0: No, I, I don't know. Uh, kind of yes and kind of no. Like they needed they needed her testimony uninfluenced by by someone else being in the room.
1: Oh, I appreciated the need for it. I just wondered about are you truly a neutral party if you don't respect the culture that you are, you know, involved with. Like, are you truly neutral then? Or are you like, no, you're going to play by our rules and our rules say everybody speaks individually. I agree with you wholeheartedly. How are you going to get the, the true story? That's how I feel. But, uh, but I believe in everybody having rights and everybody not being like second-class citizens and all this kind of stuff. So I just wondered about the neutrality part of it all, When you're already like undermining the cultural beliefs of a group of people. Like, are you actually neutral or what? Now, hey, I appreciate it. And it certainly worked for this group. Did you expect for June to go in and be like, here's the situation? Did you expect for her to express the all the atrocities that have been going on? Did you expect for her to ever tell anyone what she saw in the handmaid's room? Because she never verbalizes it to anyone else.
0: I expect her to do what she did. I mean, she dealt with diplomats before, like the Mexicans, and tried to get her message across. So this time she knew that she needed to have basically just one message, try to get it across quickly. She couldn't, like, you know, throw in the kitchen sink, basically.
1: She very much stayed on message that this is about the kids. It's, she never tried to secure her own safety. She never tried to out all the cruelty and all of the atrocities that's going on in Gilead. She just tried to secure safety for that one kid, which is kind of wild because when you think about it, she had the ears of people who maybe could spread the word about both her children and herself and the handmaids and the class system. Like she could have done a lot of things. And when they asked for information, as the the collateral for that. I was interested that she never considered herself To be a viable information source it's almost like she herself drank the kool-aid on some level that like she never volunteered herself and her own story and her own information she knew a ton she could say joseph lawrence is behind this here's the books blah 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 blah. she could give so much information but it's like she overlooked herself completely and was like oh well the only person that anyone would care about is a man that's in power here and i can tell you who that is isn't that kind of interesting that it's like, well, from the Swiss's point of view, which here there's women on the council, you're not nothing. Your voice does matter and you could give a lot of information, but she never even considered offering herself up.
0: Well, she she made her, her statement. Her statement was, I want the child to stay in Canada. That's what I think is best. Then came the, we need Nick's say so, which is when the, the audio tape came to, came to light last week in the podcast, we had said that Luke would need to give the audio cassette as, you know, a good reason to, to keep the baby in Canada. And that, that happened off camera, basically.
1: And do you think that given the scene of the, of the, the sort of like small version of the prayer propaganda video where Fred says to Nick, Hey, why don't you go stand in my spot? And you know, just so I can like frame it up and like ask him to stand in for him. Yeah. And he does that. Do you think at that point, Fred had any inkling at all of any of the Swiss Council information? Or like, was there any paperwork in advance that like, the Swiss people were very clear that like, no, we already know that Commander Blaine's the dad. Like, they knew everything. There was like no question mark about this stuff. Did Fred, I mean, that moment of asking him to step in for him seemed so layered. He wasn't doing it to be like, "Mm, because I just need to fix the lighting. Like, it was like, "Mm, no, I mean, he was saying that in a very pointed way.
0: A: It's clear that the Swiss did not know everything about Nick, otherwise they wouldn't have made the deal and then said, "No, nah, fuck the deal" after after Nick actually shows up. But B: Yeah, she he knows that Nick, yeah. Yeah, he knows Nick's uh, Nick's the dad and yeah, he was he was toying with everybody there with with his stand in for me and and all that business. But okay, but, so, but the more disturbing thing about all that is, why is Nick even there? He was supposed to have shipped out.
1: Yeah, that was really confusing. They're
0: miles away from where they were. He's supposed to be, <laughs> be heading west. Washington, D.C. is not west.
1: Well, and not only that, but like the last time we saw him and they were having this goodbye, which was a while ago when you think about it, um, you know, he said, you know, it could be like any second and he was just there literally to say goodbye. Why would he be in D.C.? Why... I mean, the only thing I can think of, I mean, and this is, you know, we talked about this a little before and I'm just kind of throwing this out there. I guess you would deploy from a central location. So maybe you wouldn't deploy from Boston. Maybe everybody who is going to be deployed heads to D.C. And then as a as a unit, you would launch off to wherever you're going. However, you're all going to get their convoy, what have you. No, I mean, not some fortuitous timing, Paul, that we have to make a propaganda video at the same time. But I mean, it is kind of logical, right? When you really think about it. But it's annoying from the standpoint of like us viewers who are like, really? Nick just happened to be there. It's kind of soap opera-y, right? Maybe, like, dun, dun, dun. maybe it's totally D- Stefano.
0: DC is the hub of well, everything. Which, you know, when you're you're watching this, you're thinking, well, maybe, why couldn't they make their video in Boston, right? But perhaps they control all of the media created in Gilead by making it all in D.C. You don't get your local news or anything like that from anything. If there's a message to be had, it is from, it is created and distributed by some entity in D.C. So that's my guess about why they needed to make the video in DC and if that's true then maybe they like you said they need the, they also distribute their military assets the same way
1: i mean i think it makes sense again though from this government sanctioned video like it has to happen there right it has to well
0: i think like i said i think that's where they're managing the flow of information so it all gets made there
1: When June makes the deal with the Swiss Council that she is going to bring forward this commander, Commander Blaine, right? Did you think that Nick was going to actually go in and talk? And I'm going to say that in a couple different ways. Do you think that Nick personally was going to make the choice to go in and talk? And two, did you think he would actually make it to the council's table in order to talk?
0: I did. I did.
1: I never did. I never did.
0: Well, they gave us a scene with him in the waiting area and being called up. And then after that, it's a black hole until they say, yeah, we can't use him. Sorry. Then it's like, well, I thought you were so well informed that you even know his knew his name.
1: But you where know? did that come from? Was that like a pre-understood concept that they had already researched him and they were never going to accept his information?
0: Why would they go through the have, bringing him in just to tell him I, we can't use you?
1: I don't even like I, I know what you think you saw. I don't even know that he went in that room and what information he gave. Like, they really purposely left that very uncertain. I know they met in the courtyard, which we have a lot of big question marks about, you guys. Paul yelled out, like, this is the most powerful guy. Like the president,
0: basically. And they don't have a single guardian wandering around his his place. Like, Fred's place was comparatively tiny. And they had a constant flow of guards walking around the whole thing. This is supposed to be the head honcho and she can just run out with her hair down.
1: I know, I noticed that real quick. BT those, dubs. Those locks were flowing.
0: And they can have a smooch without any prying eyes on them at all.
1: Super questionable, really odd. And again, like one of those moments that like, it really takes me out of the whole, again, tension. Like this has to be a police state fearful situation like we cannot have these moments of like oh but the star-crossed lovers can meet for an hour and chit chat in the yard and nobody will bother them like it can't be someone should say release the hounds and they should have to go fucking running like that's what gilead's supposed to be about and why you're scared for the characters if they can run out and and they get even get a secret message like, hey girl, your guys on time and like nobody gives a shit and you can go out there and you can make out for a while. What? Come on, <laughs> this ain't seventh grade. <laughs> little insight into me (laughs) (laughs) i'm just saying like it's just one of those things like i just i don't get it and i don't understand it and i kind of wish that they would just take that extra moment to say at least make them have to sneak at least make her have to put her hair up at least make her have to put something over the top of her head at least make them have to meet under the bush like fucking something to give you some sense of urgency and fear because that was not about it She wanted to persuade him, but other than that, there was no real nervousness that they were going to get caught.
0: No. So, big question marks there about continuity.
1: Now, overall, what was your takeaway from the Swiss Council? Like, were you super hopeful as I was when they first were like, we want to talk to each of you individually. And you were like, oh my God, she's actually going to get to talk to someone outside of these crazies in Gilead and be able to tell someone her story. And then to have those results be essentially nothing, Just, we're going to continue the questioning. Did you feel like you just kind of got kicked in the gut like I did?
0: I think their motivations are mixed. And they said as much when they said that what they are looking for is a way out of this without conflict. I don't think that their primary motivation is going to be the welfare of the child in the sense that that the child is raised in the place where they have the best chance for success. They are trying to make sure that Gilead doesn't go off half-cocked.
1: I think it just felt like they were this little bit of hope and when they said our recommendation is going to be to continue the talks it just felt like we just had run in a circle this episode when it came to that I mean all it really did I guess was it eliminated the potential power or pivot that the mixtape could have offered like it just kind of neutralized that moment like, yeah, we know, we know, we know Waterford's not the dad. That was it. For all of our excitement of last week of like, oh my God. And then the information going to come out. And is Nick going to be in trouble? And is Fred going to freak out? And the whole world's going to know it's not their baby? And it was like this. Yeah, we already know. Like it was one liner. Like we already know. Really?
0: Uh, I have a lack of faith in Luke's ability to kind of uh, figure out a way to, to make this work if things go against him up there, you know, like, going public with the audio cassette might be one thing where if he gets enough Canadians to be like, what do you mean that that's that's bullshit giving back the baby then they might be like, well, I guess we can't give the back the baby but if, if he's just operating like a vacuum up there and everyone's like, well, you know they're putting out all these sad videos <laughs> like Sarah McLaughlin dog videos uh, but for but for the baby uh, Those videos to me, they hold about as much weight as i don't know watching other religious extremists in their videos i'm all like mm, that's not that's not convincing me that your way is the right way you know when i see those videos and i can't imagine that i'm alone so when rational people see those videos of the of the handmaid's all having to kneel in unison and all that kind of stuff is that really compelling stuff? Is, is someone like, oh, geez, I guess they are all sad, or or what?
1: I would love for someone, either like a body language expert, or again, someone who understood the real effectiveness of propaganda, to try to explain to any of us um, how how it really works. You and I had talked a little bit about, and this was completely out of context of. Handmaid's Tale. But we talked about the idea of the war propaganda, trying to encourage people to volunteer by saying your wife will be so proud of you mm-hmm. if you volunteer. And and the way that you can word things that really get to, to people's egos or their uh, you know deepest, darkest concerns that, you know, will my wife be proud of me? I better do X, Y, Z. That I wonder who this does get to. And I wonder how it does it. What is the mechanism that clicks over? The the only thing that I had was the the numbers, was the sheer numbers. And then when you have somebody like us the Swiss government who, if you say, Well, I don't respect Gilead, but I've always respected the Swiss. And if they say we can we should continue to talk to Gilead, well, now I give Gilead a little bit more credit because they clearly have, you know, proven something to the Swiss that the conversation needs to continue. So there's something there, but I wish I had more understanding of how it works. So listeners, if any of you out there have like done any reading or understanding about propaganda videos or how it gets to people, is it sheer numbers? Is it the wording of things? I I don't know. What is it that gets to people's hearts or brains or what clicks people to want to be sympathetic to those situations? There was so much disturbing inner imagery that was going on with these videos and and the women surrounding them that we haven't gotten into. And I know that you guys might be thinking like, I've listened to this podcast for like an hour now and y'all have not mentioned The Handmaid's Mouths yet. And we feel like you are missing the effing point, Dailies. And I want to say there is nothing about that moment that didn't absolutely suck all my breath, like out of my body. It was beyond disturbing it was horrific and um it made it so much worse when we had June and Serena In that battle at the Lincoln Memorial, and you saw all the American imagery.
0: I would say the desecrated Washington Memorial and Lincoln Memorial.
1: And not just being destroyed, but the decapitation of Lincoln, the removal of his hopeful words behind him, you know, encouraging people to treat people equally, to, you know, have the the president who guided the country to abolish slavery and now Gilead, you know, all they are is about slaves. It was such a kick in the stomach. And to have Serena stand in front of Lincoln Memorial decapitated and say, I should have put a ring in your mouth like on day one, the culmination of that disturbing line with the imagery of, you know, the handmaid from the from you know, earlier in the episode and the decapitated Lincoln. Like for me, I was like, oh, like this is horrific.
0: Did you see the scene when Lydia peeks under the, the covering of, an, of just a random handmaid and found that she also had the rings in her, her mouth?
1: Yes. Like, so that was standard issue. Um, the I believe so. Fact that, um, And it wasn't that she peaked. It was that the handmaids, um, I'm not sure what we would call that covering, but it was like their, their mouth and neck and chest covering that extra clasped on part, which that noise of those clipping clasps sounded so frightening, but it was like it had come down just a little bit. And so Lydia had gone over to it to kind of fix it. And that's when she realized like what was there. So... I think it was a huge awakening for Lydia of like how these women are being treated on a level that she didn't even expect. Again, this is like being the country mouse coming into the city. I and mean, being like this is the way you guys are doing things. Like this is a level of life that is so much more insane than I have ever even imagined. We're going to talk about Lydia and and her continued decline here, but I just thought that that moment, the imagery moment of Serena yelling about the ringed mouth in the Lincoln Memorial, just was knocking you flat on your back.
0: It makes me wonder it's, if they're if this is like we were saying, like like they're closer to the center, so these are the more hardline guys that have these more hardline policies, or is this like a pilot program that they're trying to see well. You know, the, the the trouble coming from handmaids decreased ninety nine percent after you nailed their mouths shut. So we're gonna send this out to the to the other parts of the country and see if they can solve their problems that way.
1: I wonder also if it kind of comes under that loose lips sink ships quite literally. Like they are in the the epicenter of the decision making for the government. And living in, like, the Winslow home would be very different than living in, like, you know, the Putnam House or something, you know, where you're eating ice cream and doing whatever. You know, like, this seems like this is where, like, the rubber meets the road, that Gilead is actually a functioning government. And that idea that your, how you know, Handmade could go out and spill secrets or in any way be, a, a you know, a contributing negative force in your household in any way, I think the control level is just clamped down. You know, like a bear trap on everybody. Good imagery. That's what, I mean, you guys, we had so many questions about it. Like, I was like, how do you eat? Like, I know that the way they didn't sew their mouths shut, like with like sewing needle, but the way that it was done, like where there was like, I guess in theory enough space, you could put a straw, but like Paul was even saying, like, do you think they're like tube fed through like their nose or is it possible they would put a G button in their stomach? All of, if you guys don't know what a G button is, that's what, that's what, uh, people who are unable to eat, it's, it's a it's basically like a line directly to your stomach that you can, you can pour, um, nutrients into the, the entire scenario. Again, it's interesting because a lot of people from season one, And certainly through season two, as June has become more vocal, have said, you know, uh, one of our listeners, Pete, said, I don't understand why they don't just like tie a handmaid down and just claim their mouth shut and be like, shut up and just like have kids. He wasn't advocating this. He was just saying it's crazy how much trouble handmaids are allowed to sort of like rabble rouse when if you're only being used for giving birth, you don't really have to go to the store You know, like you don't have to be given any freedoms to do anything or any errands or talk with anybody. Right. This seemed like moving towards that. Like if you wanted to turn this into like a factory lineup. Well, the first thing is nobody needs to talk in order to have kids. So let's just remove that from the table. You know, you know, there's a lot more gruesome things you could do to somebody. And I pray we don't see that happening to make someone immobile or whatever. But there's a lot of things that I feel like moving forward that it's like it doesn't make sense that the handmaids are left intact when you if you're going to go down that gross road of what are they really needed for Their uterus does not require that they have working legs or arms or, you know, like a lot of parts to them that are like not needed. It scares me because this is like the first time we've seen something taken away at this level. I know certainly Janine with her eye, don't get me wrong, but, but, but uniformly, yeah, more uniformly taken from everyone. It's scary where we might head with this. When Serena had no problem yelling that at June saying, I should have put those rings in your mouth. I know you're saying, June's saying, you know, you're empty. It was like, that was like real mean. But I'm like, Paul, like, she just said, like, I should have deformed you. I, I should have maimed you. Like, all this was like, oh, like, oh my God, Serena, she's gone off the cliff. You know, like, she has left the building.
0: Should have never let her touch that baby.
1: Apparently, that is the main thing. One of the things that also struck me about the scene at the, the Lincoln Memorial, of course, geographically, what an interesting and savvy choice to choose the Washington Mall there with the reflecting pool, having the, the cross uh, made out of the Washington Monument, standing on the steps of, you know, the president who who fought for equal rights. You have June with this really perverted sense of power standing up there where it's you have all of these women who you know underneath those coverings have their mouths clamped shut against their will having to wait for june to kneel this moment of she has this ultimate power to create the command for them to submit. I thought it was so interesting when I was talking to you about her moment of dropping the rock with Janine, having that same moment of like leading a rebellion and how polar opposite this moment felt.
0: You could see that it was a struggle for her to decide what to do. Fred even had to prompt her twice I wonder if it was live TV, you know what I mean? Like a live broadcast, and that's what kind of added that urgency to it. Otherwise, Fred might have just turned around and been like, cut, let's do that again. Did you think for even even a second she would just stay standing or do something else? I kind of did.
1: You make me pause on that. I'm not sure that in that situation, they they zoomed in on her eye and they showed the close-up of her eye and the reflection of the cross of, you know, the, the Washington Monument, I felt like she was literally brought to her knees by Gilead and just the imagery around her. Like, the, the, the true heavy weight of what these people had been able to accomplish just pushed her down physically you know, to her knees, looking into the eyes of those women and the kind of pleading eyes of those women, what I felt like was like, you don't even know the level of punishment. If you don't go on your knees, we can't go on our knees. And if we don't go on our knees, our lips being sewn shut are going to be about the, the last thing we're concerned about. You know, like the punishment level here is like nothing you've ever experienced. So the pleading eyes of that one handmaid that she really zoomed in on to me was like, sometimes you got to submit in order to actually be able to get back up again.
0: Yeah, I think that's where she was at.
1: I think so. It's kind of like, you know, like uh, sometimes you got to like take a punch or something or or allow yourself to be pushed in order to sort of like regain your strength I don't know how to exactly say that in, in a way that makes sense, but it's like it can't always be a straight line to your goal. Like sometimes that you're going to have these moments where you have to step back and like accept some level of defeat in order to like get up another day. Because if you don't in this moment when it's televised and all these eyes are on you and all these people, they are likely to just burn you all at the stake, you know, and then you'll never have another day to go get Hannah. I guess it's lose the battle, win the war.
0: That's right. That's that's exactly right. So where does that leave us?
1: Well, I'm really curious about Aunt Lydia. I got to tell you, I think that this particular episode and her seeing the extreme nature of what's going on at the center of Gilead really makes me wonder if she is going to be able to continue her job at the Red Center and continue to create the scenario in which these handmaids are getting their mouths sewn shut. When June and her were sitting and talking right before she had to go, Did you feel that Lydia was going to be that open and that consoling and that, mm, I almost want to say nurturing of June?
0: Thanks to the extreme nature of the way that the handmaids are treated and assumingly the way that the ants have to enforce the treatment of the uh, handmaids. So she might be thinking of what would my part in this have to be. You know what I mean? Am I am I helping or am I or am I hurting? And that's if she's an aunt in Washington D.C., then she's having to do this, right? She's party. Uh, at worst, she's done is like do the ear clamp thing, you know.
1: She ordered some clit surgery and some eye removal, okay. so it's not been you nothing right. at all. You are
0: correct. She's done some nasty but things,
1: systemically, we're talking right. about where everybody is going to have to go through this. That's something different in
0: her mind. Those those punishments she thought, were helping those women better adapt to the situation that they found themselves in in Gilead, right? Caroline and I don't think that that's right, a right way to be. But in her mind, I'm thinking that's the way she gets up in the morning is she's telling people, like she explained to June in this episode, she's helping. She thinks that she's helping.
1: The little speech that they have her give where she said, you know, she doesn't want the handmaids to be silenced, that this trip has been so tiring and it's going to be so good to go home. And when she's so tired like this, that she all she can really think about is that if she can do good for one person, just one soul, if she can do something to try to make things easier on that one person, that that at least she's doing some amount of good. This makes Lydia such a complex character because I do feel like on some level she truly believes that if she can equip these women with the survival skills to get through this process of basically becoming a, you know a breeder for this society that somehow she will have done good for the world she will have a baby in this world and not only that but if she can somehow create a woman who can Deal with this, who understands the rules and can live within them, then somehow she is actually doing something worthwhile. And I think when she sees these moments that she can see are cruel, sewing someone's mouth shut is absolutely psychotic. Taking that away from them is just insane. I feel like she is, is questioning to the point of, like, I just, I, I honestly don't know that Aunt Lydia makes it to season four, which is a huge loss to this entire show if that happens. But I do not see her remaining in the role of this head aunt at the Red Center. Like, there's got to be some sort of change of heart and losing the alliance with Serena offers this opening, I think, with Aunt Lydia that I honestly, I mean, when we saw the scene where Aunt Lydia put her arm around June and said, like, you're the one I think of when I think about the one person I want to help. I rolled my eyes, you guys, because I do not think that this was an earned moment of the show. June has not been Aunt Lydia's favored child. Like, this freaking makes no sense. Janine could have this speech with her, but June... No, y'all, you guys, no, this was not a relationship that has been built in this way. Now, again, she saw that handmaid's mouth, she saw this level of insanity, but she was like, I'm pumped. You know, on the way into this situation. Right, right.
0: She didn't, well, she didn't know better at that point.
1: She didn't know. But I'm just saying, like, there's a level of Lydia that, like, I'm sorry. I just don't believe that she had this heart-to-heart sincerity concerning June specifically. And that's what they wanted to le- make you believe with. That, like, it was all about June. And it's like, but it was never about June. It was about Janine. But it was never about June. You know, June's She's been a problem. She's had a much more
0: contentious relationship with June.
1: Absolutely.
0: Much much more.
1: So where do you predict that that Lydia goes with this? Now, if we leave the small hood that we're in and we head to D.C., we have to leave some of our characters behind. There's no reason why Lydia comes to D.C.
0: Nope. She would stay where she is. So
1: if that move's happening, we're going to leave our people behind.
0: Well, the Waterfords going to D.C. and June going to D.C. are not the same thing. They could be the same thing but they're not necessarily the same thing.
1: Completely true.
0: Lydia is still having something to do with June's life, if she stays in Boston, is just a fact of life. I mean, because... Lydia accompanied her on this trip. Like she's kind of like her minder, room, like her handler, <laughs> handler. Yeah, something like I that. I feel
1: like that's like the right word. Okay, so you guys, um, I feel like that this entire episode as a whole was just riddled with this imagery and symbolism. I thought that there was such a difficulty with this episode. I know a lot of our friends said this was the worst episode they had seen on the whole, which for me. I can see why it was not just about the treatments of the handmaids. It was about watching America literally crumble a decapitated Lincoln, a, a Washington monument, um, you know, just the the extreme nature of really what I think is kind of Gilead proper, you know? Right. We're, we live on the outskirts. We didn't know how good we had it, which kind of makes sense because remember when we talked with Serena's mom and she acted like she was even like another ring out and her life was even like weirder and like more kind of loosey-goosey kind of whatever? Yeah. I mean, Serena's out there smoking and playing in the water. Well, like, she's
0: apparently running a house without a husband around
1: amen to that like what's up with all that so yeah it it, i mean it is clear that the closer you get to the center the more like intense the situation is do you think that with nick heading out and getting this like soldier salute from all these people What's going on with Nick? Do we believe that he was, like, truly this, like, crusader who really was hiding this other side? Or has this all been, like, conjured up by the Waterfords and, you know, perhaps even the information gotten by the Swiss supposed research, but maybe was probably also propaganda they were given?
0: We know that Nick's backstory had sort of a disgruntled youth aspect to it and a a certain amount of sneakiness. So it may be that...
1: Underhanded nature, if you will.
0: Yeah, so the stuff that a coup would use a sneaky guy for may not get him to the head of the class in terms of like rank afterwards like a reward the kind of like how nick was a driver and it's eventually become like a low ranking commander but if someone found out that you were the one that say helped put the bomb in the senate or whatever then yeah i guess you would have kind of a black spot on your credibility like like the swiss have have suggested where he goes from here i mean i guess he's just going to go fighting in in chicago
1: which i think is kind of exciting like do you think that he's going to be like emily like he's going to be the satellite character like are we going to actually get to see what's going on in chicago because we were following nick we haven't followed nick at all as an independent character do you think we will now i mean we for the first time we followed him walking down that hallway with all the soldiers saluting i feel like that was one of the very first times we saw him not in relation to fred not in relation to june but like doing like Going his own path.
0: If we do, then it's then it then it says that that we're not done with him in terms of June's story. Agreed. I think he's only a satellite. I agree of June. I don't think he's like a main character like that. If we don't, then we will see him again, but it will be like when he gets shot, or you know, <laughs> some some major part of his story. So it's going to be one of those two. If we keep up with him, then it's because he's coming back
1: intriguing I also think that um June's words with him about you've got to be a father and how many more chances do you think you're going to have an opportunity to be a father as soon as you kind of put that out there like how many more chances do you think you're going to get I kind of feel like well at least one more because you just said it like I kind of you know what I mean like it kind of sets you up for like now he's going to be like yearning for an opportunity to be a father and like if this one didn't work out now he's going to be like stretching to have that opportunity because he didn't get it in the way that he thought he was going to. So to me, if that... I I see this baby coming back to Gilead. I do not see this baby staying in Canada. And I think it's going to be nuts. And I don't know if Luke lives through it. But I definitely feel like that baby's coming back. I just don't see it any other way. When the Swiss said the line that... Gilead is so powerful. That changed a lot for me in terms of their ability to get this baby back cuz we just thought they're just a limp noodle like they've got nothing to work with here, you know? And now no, I I think that they've got something that apparently the international community views as powerful.
0: Man, I don't want to see the baby come back. I want to see Luke at least make a make a run for it or something.
1: The last thing I do want to touch on before we close this one down is we've had a lot of issues with the inconsistency of the show in terms of tension and allowing certain scenes to happen. And, and the last big scene that I do want to mention is that that the Lincoln Memorial scene of the Serena and June being allowed to yell and scream at each other in a, if you guys haven't been there, a very, very echoey space. Right when all of those people, hundreds of people are lined up like just down the stairs. Like that's not something you wouldn't be able to hear. And June says, I should have let you burn when I had the chance. Guys, there is no part of this story where it makes sense that a subservient person is allowed to talk like this. And again, I'm asking listeners like if they don't start doing bad things to June, does this make her be such a an invincible character that there's no longer that concern that june's not going to make it to the end point point. and are we allowed to have them kill her and move on to another handmaid
0: something has to happen to her on like a permanent kind of scale in order to keep the tension there that she's at stake because without it like you just said she just had a screaming match with a wife wives have status handmaids in this land have their mouths sewn shut so sh- so you're right the idea of her even getting a peep out would have been highly highly illegal in this in this area or not illegal but not the way it's done
1: will they take us to the level of having june's mouth ringed shut prediction
0: yes or no given the way that this epi- this season is going i'm going to say no I, I don't think they're going to commit to that
1: I agree with you and then that's where I think that as grotesque as this is to say without doing something so extreme I think they're going to lose a lot of viewers because I think it's going to get to the point where it feels like if you are living in this land and these are the types of things that people say and you have the wife straight up say I should have I should have sewn your mouth shut when I had the opportunity and you say such heinous things to the woman like she didn't hold her tongue at all she like literally Lit in to Serena in a way that was like, "Oh my God, you shouldn't have said that." Even if the threat of a hundred women with sewn mouths shut wasn't right behind the woman, you know, like, ah, uh, you shouldn't have said that. But now it's out there, you know. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't think that the that the storyline is going to go there, and and I'm also going to say that I, it's not something that I could stomach very well. But I also think that it's it's going to hurt that level of how serious is this and if she's not going to ever be punished and she's not going to ever be put back in her place then uh, you know can she just kind of do anything she's just all like to run around in this lane like, I just don't know about this this doesn't seem like our show that we started off with
0: yeah I agree
1: so I want to hear what you guys think I want, I want you to tell me While we want June to be okay and we want her to stay happy, healthy, and as intact as possible as she can possibly be in this world, does it wreck the premise of the show if she's never really in danger? Or are you guys like, look, I'm willing to see her stay that way and never be touched a hair on her head because I just can't stand any more suffering. Where do you guys land on this? Let us know. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production.